0: Alright, well good morning again everybody. hope that you had a good week. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, This morning I have a few more introspective type of questions for us to consider as we go about this message. First question, how confident are you to be able to draw a stick figure of me on your bulletin this morning? Show of hands, how many think that they can do that? How many of you think that you can draw a well-proportioned horse on your bulletin? I do have an expert here that understands a well-proportioned horse. Not as many. It's probably probably pretty accurate. Um, how about who thinks they're confident to be able to quote some Bible verses this morning? Oh boy, we're going to have to have some conversations. How about who's confident to be able to do a backflip off of this stage? Got a couple of brave souls out there. Might call you out on it. We'll see. Any confidence to pick the right lottery numbers? Oh, Ella, we need to talk then. <laughs> How much confidence do you have in your team having a winning season this upcoming year? Maybe winning the conference, something like that. How confident are you in your salvation? You know, confidence, thank you, confidence is a tricky thing because at various points in life, we place confidence in different areas, at different levels of seriousness. And when we think about that, it can be challenging. Webster, in 1828, defined confidence this way a trusting or reliance, an assurance of mind or firm belief in the integrity, stability, and veracity of another, or in the truth and reality of a fact, in that which trust is placed. He gives an example of Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to trust or take refuge in the Lord than put confidence in man. In other entries, he goes on to say, It is the belief of one's own competency, so it can be excessive boldness. It's an assurance which proceeds from vanity or false opinion of one's own abilities or excellencies. So with that understanding, and with that being said, today we're going to be looking at some of the confidences that the early church had. And we're going to be looking in Hebrews chapter 10 for this. If you have your Bibles, you may join me there. I do have it up on the screen for us today. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith Father, as we go to your Word and your truth today, I just pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to see the confidence that we have in you, that we can fully live in those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so with this passage, it includes the verse about not neglecting to meet. And that oftentimes when we go over this section or talk about Hebrews 10, that's where a lot of times we land and we focus on as a church, you know? Encouraging each other, not neglecting to meet. But when you study this section out, it's actually a sub-point of three other points within the, within the body. And we tend to uphold that one little point. Today, what we're going to focus on is why the early church was so confident and what they were to do about that confidence, how they were to live their lives as the body in order to draw them closer to the Father. And I think throughout this teaching, throughout this message time, we're going to be able to apply this one-to-one, straight down the line. So it's not something that we look forward to at the very end to apply, but we can apply a lot of these teachings that we're going over as we hear them. You know, confidence, in this sense, it means boldness. It means a freedom of speech that was claimed as a privilege. You know, and we take in what, how Webster defined confidence, how he uses the Bible as well. And we look at the the first verse that we're going to go over in verse 19. Uh, And remember, when you see a therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Generally, You look up a couple of verses, maybe a paragraph, you can get some of that context. With this one, however, you have to go back to chapter eight, verse one, and read that entire section where the author is building up this argument. He's building up this case about Christ. And right now, he's gonna be summing up everything that Christ has done for us as our savior, as our high priest, and giving the people why it matters. You know, when we think about unpacking this, we understand that as believers, because of what Christ has done, we can boldly enter into the throne room of God. Some more context for us. Back in chapter 4, the author says this in verse 14 through 16. Since, the, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Anytime you find repetition in the Bible, it's emphasis. It's important. You want to pay attention. Generally, some of that repetition happens pretty close to each other, but here this is six chapters difference where he's saying basically the same things in terms of what we are to have. He goes into a little bit more context about this confidence in terms of that we may receive mercy and find grace in the times of need, that we are to boldly enter with that confidence. But how do we treat confidence? How do we treat boldly entering? Generally, I find that we're on that spectrum, we see those two extremes where we are just very casual about it, very flippant, very arrogant, and we just enter before God and we just demand our wants, our desires, not our needs. Or the other extreme, we have no confidence at all, and we simply cower in shame and unworthiness. How dare I approach God? Again, not fully realizing the righteousness that we have with Christ, so how can we properly balance and understand this idea, this knowledge of confidence? Because the world has its own ideas about confidence. And if we don't balance these ideas well, and if we don't understand them fully, it can be dangerous for our walks. You know, the world will tell you to have confidence in yourself, your own abilities, in order to accomplish your goals and realize your dreams, making life all about you. The world's message will say that if you have riches or wealth, you can do whatever you want. If you have power, if you have strength, if you have fame, you can do anything that you want. If you are wise by the world's standards, if you play their games, whether that's cancel culture, whether that's denying the right thing of truth, you can do what you want. But the Bible tells us, As believers, our confidence, our hope, our trust is found in God and God alone. That's where it needs to lie. Jeremiah says this in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I mean, how beautiful and glorious is that passage? How God is hitting all of these areas of idolatry that we can hold up and replace our confidence in and placing it in the place that it needs to be. Our boast, our hope, our trust needs to be in the Father. Out of all of these other things, Now, the issue that we find with that balancing line that we need to recognize is, you know, it's not to say that Christians shouldn't have self-respect, that we shouldn't um, have confidence. But the issue is, what is the source of that confidence? Where do we draw that confidence from? Is it from ourselves or is it from God? You know, if we're basing our abilities solely on our own power, ultimately we're going to disappoint ourselves. But if we find our confidence rooted in Christ, who cannot fail, that is where we need to be, where we are living our life with his purposes, with his giftings, with his strength. In our flesh, we're going to respond in anger. In our flesh, we're going to be unkind. We're not going to be gracious. We want to curl up in a corner when hardships come. But through Christ, through identity, identity in him, we can respond with the fruit of the spirit. We can f- respond in grace, in love, in peace. That's Christ through us rather than struggling in our own strength. You know, when we look at verse 19 a little bit closer, we can see how we can only have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, who through him, the new and the living way has been opened. Opened. So within this whole section, this author is writing to the Jewish people and he is making connections that they would understand as readers to where he's bringing in a lot of things from the Old Testament, a lot of things from the temple days, and he's connecting them to show how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. So we want to pay attention to, to some of these connections. The holy places are reflective of the temple and the holy of holies where the high priest could enter once a year to make that sacrifice for atonement for Israel. That place in the temple is where the ark was located, the mercy seat of God, the presence of God. Even though we have this idea and the understanding of omnipresence of God, this was the presence of God. And you connect that now to heaven in the throne room of God, where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So the author is making these connections for his readers, to understand where the presence of God is, what it means to be in the holy places. So they would have this understanding of that passage. The holy of holies was something that was magnificent. The high priest could only enter once a year and he had to do it properly, otherwise he would die on the spot. To avoid casual glances, you had this big veil, this big, big curtain that was blocking, so you couldn't casually look in to see the presence of God. The veil that was torn when Jesus died on the cross. Again, making that connection. That tearing of the veil signified the relationship between God and man being restored. Jesus is the bridge. He is the path. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only confidence that we have to be able to enter at all. When we think about what His blood does, we understand that we are covered by His blood. We are washed in His blood. It is through that covering that we have His righteousness instead of our own. That God can only see his perfection, his righteousness, rather than our own shame, our own sin, our own guilt. We look at the cross and we see how his torn flesh represents that torn veil. His mutilated flesh. Imagery that should be ingrained in our minds when we think about our salvation. Imagery that needs to stick with us to understand the sin that we have. He is the sacrifice that atones and pays for our sin. It is his sacrifice that pra- pays the price once for all time. If you're still in chapter 10, look up to verse 11. It says this, "...and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins." But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice was sufficient. He sits down at the right hand of God because his work is done. He went to the cross for our sakes, whereas the priests who are still living by the law of Moses continually every day are still making these sacrifices just signifying for us in our own lives that if we continue to work harder to try to earn our salvation we're going to continue working and we're not going to get there our confidence cannot be in ourselves it can only be in Christ this confidence it's a boldness it indicates a freedom of speech permission to approach an authority without fear with plainness with openness boldness that's without anxiety or cowering or fear and trembling You know, I think of the Exodus journey quite a bit when I read Hebrews and and how God's people interacted with him on that entire journey. There's a lot of contrasts, there's a lot of similarities to what's happening with Christ. And you think, after the Ten Commandments are given, what was the reaction of the people at that time? Do you recall? It's found in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. So we can see that response of the people and we can compare that to Moses' response who draws near to God. They were to trust God. They were to have confidence in him without anxiety, without fear, around determined boundaries. So a little bit for earlier, God sets the boundaries at the base of the mountain. They were to come up to the base. They can't touch it. They can't climb up any further. But he wanted them to the boundary. But after they hear the Ten Commandments, after they hear the voice of God, they're far off. I don't want to get any closer to God. He wants them to come closer. See, the connection here is we too can approach God, but with boundaries. And that boundary is through Christ and Christ alone. That is the only way that we can have confidence to boldly enter into the throne room. Now, there's another passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, that deals with this kind of fear. And they reference this scene here in Exodus. In chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and a gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. No, when the law of Moses is given on the mountain, the reaction of the people is terror, It's trembling. It's that type of fear. It wasn't a reverent fear to understand who God is and to draw close to him. You know, and you think about that, perhaps rightly so. Because yes, they were consecrated, but their sins have not fully been dealt with. You know, with Christ, once and for all time, our sins are paid for. Again, it doesn't mean that we approach casually, but rather having a high reverence And confidence in Christ, not ourselves. So, because of all of this, with the therefore and the teaching that he had given in the previous few passages, and the confidence that they have to approach God, there are three things that the author implores the Hebrews to be about in their lives. In the light of all that has been accomplished for them by Christ, he says, Let us draw near to God, let us hold fast to our confession. And let us stir each other up in love and good works. Now with each of these three things, he goes into a little bit greater detail um, to help them understand what this needs to be about. But these are the responses that should happen as they're contemplating what Christ has done for them. These are the responses that were true for the early church. This, these are the same type of responses that need to be true for us today and will be true until Christ comes back. As believers, we want to draw closer to God. We want to hold fast the confession of our faith and we want to stir each other up in love and good works. First one, we are to draw near to God with a true heart. When you look back at the Exodus 20 passage and how Moses drew near to God in the cloud, we have to understand that God desires a relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to draw near to him. And the heart here, it stands for the inner man, okay? The soul, the inner part of who you are. It's sincere. It's important to understand that as we approach God, that we examine ourselves, that we are right with God. We do this every time when we're having communion. Examine yourselves before God. Seek forgiveness if you have wronged him. We need to do it with a heart that's true, with no shame. Understanding the forgiveness that we've received. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, it is the pure in heart who will do what? See God. Make that connection with a true heart to draw near to God. In view of what Christ has done for us, we should approach God in deep sincerity. On top of that, let it be a heart that's full in the assurance of faith. The full assurance of faith stresses that it is only by trust in Christ who has done this for us as our high priest, who has done this work, who has given us this sacrifice that we can even draw near at all. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he desires for us to make use of the way that he made open for us. The purpose of religion is to reestablish that relationship between God and man. Use it. The way is open through christ now it also says here that our hearts are sprinkled clean an obvious reference to baptism but still making a connection to the priests with this reference because the priests and the the animals that were sacrificed were washed with a pure water we have different different references how the priests would be sprinkled with the blood of the the sacrifices through different rituals couple places for you in Exodus 29:21 it says then you shall take part of the blood take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him he and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him and then in numbers 8 it says take the levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them thus you shall do to, to them to cleanse them sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor all over their body and wash their clothes and cleanse them. So again, connecting the priesthood to the actions of Christ to be able to put our confidence in him and what he has done so that we may draw near. The second point, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, so holding fast gives you this sense of holding firm, securing tightly our confession of hope in Jesus. This we have to do without wavering, so without losing balance or having that sense. If we're losing balance, it means that we're having a faulty foundation. You know, we must not bend or yield to the pressures of this idolatrous world. And there's going to be pressures to cave from society on all sides, The enemy will use any type of pressure that he can to get us to try and renounce the truth. But Jesus is faithful. Remember that. He is faithful. I can be wrong. I can be in error. I can have misinterpretations. But he does not. He is truth. He made the promise. He made the covenant in his blood and he is faithful to see it through. You know, you think about the covenant that he made, the hope that we have being rooted in that covenant. It takes me back to the covenant that's made with Abraham and God. I always love that imagery. You know, God says, get all these animals together, split them in half, make an aisle. And generally, when you made a covenant in this day and age, both parties would walk through that aisle with the intentions of, if I break this covenant, may I be like these dead carcasses. I've often taught I'd love to do weddings like that. I think it would add a little bit more value to the covenant that you're making. Now, you think about that graphic imagery. It burns in your mind for that reason, for you to remember the covenant. You think about the covenant that Jesus made. You think of his torn flesh, his mutilated body. I think of the movie The Passion, that cat of nine tails just ripping across his back. The image of the cross should be burned into our minds of the covenant that Jesus made in his blood. Because that is the basis for the hope of our salvation. The third point. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider how to. It means to observe well. To where you are understanding one another well. You're observing other people's likes, other people's dislikes. You're understanding how this relationship needs to be had. Where the emphasis isn't one-sided. But people understand because they are believers that they are to love one another. And they are to do that well. It isn't a, a command from leaders. You need to love them like you're forcing somebody to be friends. But it takes time. You know, um, they say traditionally, um, psychologically, I guess, I don't know, it takes about five years to develop good friendships. To where it's a type of friendship that's not an acquaintance, but it's, I know that this person would drop everything to come and help me at this time. It takes that long just to build strong friendships. Patience. But, you know, you think about... The community that's there, the koinonia that we talked about last week, this bond, is there a genuine stirring to love and good works? The word translated as stir has a meaning like irritation or exasperation. You think of Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not exasperate your children. So you know, normally this meaning is more negative. Which makes it even more striking that he is using this as a plea to provoke one another to love. A love that is not self seeking, a love whose example is Christ on the cross, to stir them up to do love and good works. Now, how can we stir each other up? By having regular church attendance. It is there that we receive these types of reminders and the opportunities to connect. As the author says, some are neglecting to meet, to come to those meetings, to forsake coming together during that time of worship. You know, if we neglect to meet, then chances are we're going to waver a little bit more easily in the hope that we have. We're going to be drawing near. We're not going to be drawing nearer to the Father. We're going to be further away from the Father. We need to be in relationship with Him and each other. Now, in America, you can get all kinds of beliefs that cover this topic. You can have a belief or a walk that says, Sundays are all I need, I don't really need anything else um, during the week, I don't need to work on those types of relationships. You can have a walk that says, I'm going to go from church to church until I find something that I'm comfortable with, or I don't need church as a Christian. Now, I would say that those perspectives are wrong because we have a day that is coming that we need to be prepared for. Now, that day, we believe, is the day that Jesus will return. could also be the day of our death, or as some readers would have taken this, the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, where possibly one and the same, all three of those things, where they thought Jesus was returning. Some of them might have died. They were going through quite the oppression at that time. But through the understanding of a day, it's the understanding of hardships and trials that are going to be coming. And we need to encourage one another to draw near to God, to hold fast to the confession of our hope, and to stir each other up in love and good works. For the early church, these three points were a natural outcome of the confidence that they had because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of the salvation that they had received, and they lived in that hope. We need to do the same. Now, when you think about um, church and metrics and gauging different things, a lot of times churches will weigh things based on attendance, giving, and baptisms. The focus on attendance makes us emphasizing this part of the passage all the more relevant. We're focused on not neglecting to meet because we want to make sure our metrics are good. We want people to be desperate or we're desperate to have people come to church you know for most people they figure growth is an indicator of healthiness can be you know we're growing as a church we're running out of space it's a good problem to have right but especially in the summertime what grows the fastest weeds is that a healthy indicator You know, Jesus does not say for us to focus on these things. I mean, they can be good indicators. They can tell us a lot of different things. But Jesus' focus to the disciples in the Great Commission is what? What is the imperative? Many times we think it's go, but it's as you are going, make disciples. The only indicator that I try to look at for a healthy church is how well are we making disciples? If we're just coming on Sunday, then we're just coming to be entertained. That's not health. How invested are we in each other's lives to build each other up, to encourage each other in the faith, to help walk through life together in the word? Are we discipling one another? Are we mentoring one another? Are we making disciples who then can go on and make disciples? You know, if we're raising up the next generation, are we only raising them to be believers? Are we raising them to continue to go out and make new believers? What is the value that we put on the indicators to gauge our health? If we are making disciples then people will grow properly and they will be drawing near to God. If we are clear in the gospel message and bringing people up in that, they will hold fast to the confession of hope that they have. And if we are one in Christ, we will stir each other up in love and good works. You know, we live in an age of podcasts and digital worship. It could be a great way to reach people that will never step foot in a church. It can be great to... Help us when we're on vacations and we're not able to come to church. I get all of that. But that's not what's meant by church in this passage. The reason why this verse about neglecting meeting is said so often is because if we neglect to meet, then it's like we're removing ourselves from the source, from the vine. And it's a danger, it's a warning. Because again, especially in America, people will say, I don't need church. I've been to 30 different churches and they're all hypocrites. I've got my Bible. That's all I need for that type of attitude. I can only say humbly as a pastor who has a master's degree, who has a lot of training, I need the church. I need the church to keep me on the straight and narrow because if it's just me and my Bible, I can get off on some crazy rabbit trails. I can have interpretations that don't really speak the truth. So I need a body of believers around me to rein me in when I get a little too crazy. I need those people, that core group, that can do that. And I know, especially in summers we travel a bunch but i also know that there's many of us once a month once every 6 weeks that's what we attend i want to encourage you make church a priority and i don't mean coming on sundays to a gathering it's good but the building is not the church you are the church So make each other a priority where you're investing in one another. That's where our hearts need to be. That's where our walks need to be. Not just checking something off of a list so pastor won't yell at me. Because if we can be connected through the confidence that we have in Christ, our confession and our hope, our strength can be firmly rooted in him. That is the bond that unites us. That's the bond that brings us together to be the church, to make us one in him, where we can stir each other up in love and good works and praise and glorify his name above ourselves, above our own powers, above our own strength, because only he deserves that glory. So let's live in that way. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for the truth that's so plainly seen in your word but sometimes very difficult to live out practically. And I pray that as we continue to dive into your word and draw closer to you, that you would give us clarity and understanding. Lord, that you would put those in our lives that, that we can walk through the fires with. Lord, you have brought each of us here today for a reason. And I'm thankful for each one. Lord, we pray for those that weren't able to make it today. And we just ask that you would continue to put it in our hearts what it means to have strong fellowship, what it means to be invested in one another, and that we can take those proper steps. Lord, life is busy, yes, but we need to readjust some priorities so that we can make disciples as we're going along in this life so we can fulfill the great commission that you have given the church. Lord, we praise you for the day that you've given us. We praise you for this building and this opportunity and this place to have church. Lord, continue to mold us to understand what it means to be the church. Help us to draw near to you. Give us ears to hear. Help us to boldly come before you through the blood of Christ, praising you for the salvation that we've received, holding fast to the gospel message, because the world is going to try to take that from our lips, to distort it, to change it, to say that it's not true. So Lord, we need one another to keep us strong in those times of our own weaknesses to hold us up, to hold our arms up as the battle rages on. Help us to identify those people in our lives. And Lord, if we don't have them, Lord, we pray that you would bring them in. Help us to take that next step in our faith, trusting you a little bit more each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.